Welcome to the Redemption Church Podcast, located in Seattle, Washington. As a church, we are a community striving to be faithfully present to God, self, and others. We hope this is an encouragement to you in your life, no matter where you are. Thanks for joining us. All right, everybody, go ahead and grab a seat. Good to see all of you here. Welcome to Redemption. I'm so glad to see your faces here in church. This is so nice to be together as we continue to reopen. Uh, to all our dads, happy Father's Day to you guys. It's, uh, it's an honor to be uh, in the ranks with you. As a dad, uh, it is probably, the, I think it is the greatest joy of my life getting to be a dad. At the same time, I want to acknowledge the fact that uh, Father's Day is not always amazing for everybody in the room. Some of us either, like, you're with me, your father has passed away, and it's also a day of, there's some tears involved. Uh, some of you may have strained relationships with your dad or whatever, and I just want to be mindful of the fact that the Apostle Paul tells us that we're to rejoice with the rejoicing and weep with the weeping, and that the Christian faith is about also, it's not just a mental exercise that we do, but we're very much so horizontally connected that our faith actually has implications on how we're present to one another. And so if you find yourself in a place of rejoicing, we're rejoicing with you. If you find yourself in a place of grief today, I want to be mindful of that too, that life is hard and relationships are difficult. And I want to remind you that God is present to you, whether you're rejoicing or grieving today. So today, um, we're continuing through the book of Hebrews. Um, and I am so glad to see so many new people in our church over the last few weeks that have been tuning in online for over a year and now <laughs> becoming members of the church. Like, oh, so you've been a part. Nice, nice to see your face. Um, and so you've joined at a really great time in the life of our church. Our church, we're in the middle of replanting our church. And so if you haven't heard much about that, grab some information on the way out the door. But we are strategically refocusing and reorienting and replanting ourselves here in Seattle so that people might know Jesus and come to him in faith. That's what we're here for. And so it's a great time to be joining and getting involved and connecting to our small groups and the life of our community. And so as I said a minute ago, we're continuing through the book of Hebrews. We're roughly one-fifth of the way through the book, this amazing epistle. And so the, the writer of the, the epistle to the Hebrews is unknown, but we know that it was written roughly 65 A.D. to a group of persecuted and pressured believers in a city. The Christians were under persecution from the Jews because they were uh, putting too much emphasis on Jesus and had too high of a view of Jesus. A prophet, fine. Son of God, co-equal with God, it's not okay. Severe persecution from the Jews were coming against the Christians. But there was also pressure from the Roman, the Greco-Roman empire as a whole for Christians to knock Jesus down just one peg and just treat him like a good teacher or even like one of the other hundreds of gods in their pantheon. But because Christians were utterly convinced that Jesus is one with God and that Jesus was resurrected from the dead and that Jesus and Jesus alone is the way in which men and women come to salvation, they faced pressure and persecution. One of my favorite missiologists, his name is Leslie Newbigin, he wrote this back in 1995. He says this, the community that confesses Jesus 
is Lord has been from the beginning a movement launched into the public life of mankind. The Greco-Roman world in which the New Testament was written was full of societies offering to those who wished to join a way of personal salvation. There were several commonly used Greek words for such societies. At no time did the church use any of these names for itself. It used almost total consistency the name Ecclesia, the Ecclesia Theu, the assembly called by God. The church could have escaped persecution by the Roman Empire if it had been content to be treated as a cultus privatus. The church could have escaped persecution by the Roman Empire if it had been content to be treated as a private cult. Wow. As you read through Hebrews, you'll see the writer later reference, you've suffered the plundering of your things. They've come into your house and they've taken your things. Some of you have given your lives over. The, the, the early church and the church globally around the world to this day suffers tremendously just to do what we're doing right now, to have a copy of the Bible, to open it and proclaim and celebrate that Jesus is Lord. This is not, what, this is not normal for so many countless believers around our world. The early church would not back down about our conviction about who Jesus is and what Jesus has accomplished as reigning King of Kings and Lord of Lords. In a city like Seattle, in which we face incredible pressure, do you feel it all the time? I know I do. To just back down on a few things. Stop saying Jesus is the only way to God. Stop saying silly things like the resurrection is true. Stop saying things like he's going to return to judge the living and the dead. We don't judge people in Seattle, do we? <laughs> Go online today and maybe you will find out we do and we're very good at it. We like to cancel everyone. But the church wouldn't back down. And the same call to the early Christians is the same call to us today. To dig our heels in. Martin Luther said a man can only do two things. He must do his own believing and his own dying. That's what you have to do as a Christian. And so, what do you believe about Jesus? What are you pressured to compromise about Jesus? Well, how did the early writer to the epistle encourage a young church in the city with incredible pressure? Well, the first thing he didn't do uh, was condemn and critique and criticize the surrounding pagan culture and launch a campaign against how bad the world is. It's already obvious. The second thing he didn't do is encourage the, the believers to just cave in, practice syncretism, and compromise the gospel in the effort, in the name of not rocking the boat too much. Don't call too much attention to yourself, especially your, your Jesus you're following. But what the, rather do, the writer does in order to stir up real faith and lasting hope and a renewed sense of the love of God, here's how he does it. He emphasizes what theologians call Christology, the study of the person and the work of Jesus. Who is Jesus? What has he done? Why is that significant? What are the implications on my life? What does it mean for the world around me? Christology. He decides to tie everything to Jesus. 
Because Jesus is not so much interested in your obedience as he is in interested in winning your heart. And if Jesus does win your heart, obedience follows. Does that make sense? That every other religion comes down and says, do it this way, you'll be reconciled to God. Christianity goes, actually, no. The hard work and the heavy lifting is done by Jesus. His death and burial and resurrection is sufficient. And as he wins our hearts, our obedience follows. So the church belongs to Jesus, and if we keep our eyes fixed on him, we'll finish the race. And because doctrine matters, the writer of Hebrews is not afraid to do a deep dive and educate the believers on some pretty challenging things. If you've ever read through Hebrews, you know that uh, the writer is not content with easy believism, Christianese and cliches. The writer is into critical thinking. The writer wants you to think. The church should be a place where we think deeply, not merely express emotions, but think deeply. I love this. It's not chicken soup for the soul. So the writer goes to great lengths to help the believers understand that Jesus is one with God, that Jesus has created, that Jesus has come down, that Jesus died in our place for our sins, that Jesus was resurrected, that Jesus ascends back to the right hand of the Father, that Jesus sent the Holy Spirit into the church, and that Jesus is coming to return to judge the living and the dead and make all things new. So, I think this passage today will bless you and build you up in your faith in our Lord Jesus. My hope and prayer for you today is that you walk out of here knowing your Savior loves you, is present to you, and is going to empower you for another week of faithfully and sometimes skinning our knees along the way, unfaithfully following him. So let's do it. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. Okay, so for those of you that are new here, um, we do something called expository preaching. That is, we dive into the ancient context of the Bible. We try to understand the language, the culture, the setting in which the original writer and the occasion, why is the writer saying these things and why do they say it this way? And then we try to understand that and then bring that to bear in our own context. And so sometimes we'll walk through a chapter of the Bible. Sometimes we'll walk through a few verses. Sometimes we'll chop it down to a verse. And because I preach as slow as I read, sometimes it's a sentence fragment. And today we're going to preach through a sentence fragment. We're not even going to do the whole thing that Lisa just read. We're going to just literally cover the first half of this one verse because it's amazing. And I'm telling you, the word of God, as the writer says, is living and active And in a day and age in which we are so immediate and rushed and you just have instant information and as much as you want at your fingertips, I love the fact that we don't have to rush. And in fact, if you want to grow into biblical maturity, it won't be microwaved. It just isn't. To become faithfully present to God is tedious. It's difficult. It's challenging. It requires a lot of patience and it's unbelievably rewarding. 
Maturity takes time. And so we're going to take just an extra few minutes with just the first part of this verse because it's amazing. And I promise next week we'll finish chapter 2. Okay. So. In the previous passage, the writer was saying, and he put on the lips of Jesus, he quotes the 8th century prophet Isaiah and says, Behold, I and the children God has given me. Isaiah is looking at, a, at the fact, coincidentally, it's Father's Day, but nonetheless, Isaiah is going through an unbelievably difficult time. God had given Isaiah children, and it was a sign of God's great blessing on his life. And he knew as he was going through hardship, he looked around his dinner table and went, God has been good to me. God's provided me with a family. The writer of Hebrews takes that verse out of the 8th century B.C. and lays it on the lips of Jesus as though Jesus were saying this after his own resurrection from the dead going, Behold, I and the children God has given me. The writer emphasizes that Jesus is our brother, our unashamed older brother. And in this verse, Jesus is likened to our father. That may sound just churchy and can go one in one ear and out the other, but I need you to understand, in an honor-shame context, in the, especially in this first century, in an honor-shame world, familial language is everything. It's everything. Family means everything. And so you've been brought into the family of God. Maybe one thing to challenge yourself in as a follower of Jesus this week is to go, oh, do I think of him as like my brother, my father? Family language. Not just distant, cold, stoic, a statue somewhere that you bow down before. But no, it's warm. It's close. This is the kind of stuff that got the Christians persecuted in the first century, but by the third century, everybody was worshiping Jesus because you're relationally wired. That's because you're made in his image. God is a relationship, ontologically. <laughs> so, since therefore the children, that's you and me, share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. All right, so that's where we're going to spend our time today. He himself likewise partook of the same things. All right, so first, flesh and blood. This, the, this is a very rare thing to see in the New Testament or throughout your Bible, really, to speak about human beings with flesh and blood. The other place it shows up uh, really clear is Ephesians 6. You remember when Paul's telling the church to dress yourself in the armor of God, put on the helmet of salvation, put on the breastplate of righteousness, put on the belt of truth, put on the gospel shoes of peace, take up the shield of faith that extinguishes the, the fiery darts from the enemy, take up the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, right? He says, and stand firm. As he does that, he says, why do you do that? Because we don't wage war against flesh and blood. Flesh and blood is a way of highlighting not just generic humanity as a whole. In Genesis, God breathed into Adam's nostrils and he became a living being. The Septuagint translates that anthropos, humanity. It's a generic way of speaking about us. When the writers of the New Testament use the language of flesh and blood, they're highlighting our weakness, our dependency, our frailty, and constant need. Flesh and blood is the way the writers of Scripture start thinking after Genesis chapter 3. 
We're broken. We've got some things wrong. We wound ourselves. We sin against God. We hurt others in the world, flesh and blood. We're weak. We're temporal. We're frail. So now the writer of Hebrews says that Jesus partook of these same things to be clothed in flesh and blood. And here's why this is so important. And here's why you need to have an absolutely massive view of our triune God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The higher your view of the Trinity, the greater your appreciation of the incarnation. Does that make sense? The higher your view, almighty, God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, eternal. No one made God. He's perfect, sovereign, without sin, without flaw. There's nothing wrong with the Trinity at all. The higher your view of who God is as they exist in perfect, harmonious relationship, executing their will perfectly, the higher your view of the Trinity, the greater your appreciation of the incarnation. And as you understand, as Jesus comes down, that creates awe and wonder and even an obsession to follow him. And not only in just awe with jaw gaping, but it creates a calling for what it looks like to actually live in the world as a human being. We're doing some kind of theology this morning. I hope you are ready for that. Um, So he himself partook of the same things. So the writer is communicating that Jesus is found humbling himself, walking this earth with dusty sandals, calloused hands, working a job as a carpenter, that Jesus had an absolute blast at every party he went to. What was he doing? If Jesus' only job was to come down here and die for our sins, why didn't they come get him out of the cradle at Christmas? Answer, Jesus has come to teach you how to become holy human. If all God needed was a blood sacrifice, then why 33 years? Because it wasn't just about blood sacrifice to reconcile you to himself. We'll get to that next week in propitiation. Jesus is here to teach you how to be a whole human. That's amazing. What an invitation to everyone in our city to go, wait, what if it's not about self-actualization? What if it's not about self-fulfillment? What if it's not about beating the competition? What if it's not about more square footage and another thing? What if, what if it's about self-denial and finding life through the Holy Spirit reconciled to the God who would give up his own son to make you one with himself? What if that was the point of your whole life? 
That's good news. That as we look around at our city, filled with unbelievers, the invitation is not merely, you're a wretched, awful human being. No, the, the invitation begins with, first, our God is a trinity, and he made you in his image, and we've rebelled, and God has gone to impossible lengths to reconcile you to himself because he wants you to become holy human in Christ. That's good news. So, you are not, by the way, just part of creation. You are God's children. It's not uncommon to hear people say, well, we're all God's children. That's not, that's not true. That's not true. We're all part of God's creation. God adopts us into his family through Jesus, and then we become God's children. So, what great love has the Father lavished on us that we would be called the children of God? And so we are. To call yourself a son or a daughter of God is no small thing. That's language only used for Jesus, you know. And it's appropriate for you. Jesus is not ashamed to be called your big brother. In the first three centuries of Christianity... It's hard to get our Bible actually in writing until around 325 A.D. Why? And assembled as a canon. Because the early church was persecuted and pushed underground. Finally, when they're allowed to come out of hiding, <laughs> we were able to assemble our New Testament. And during those first three centuries, Christian debates and theology raged back and forth. Just how divine was Jesus? Just how human was Jesus? Is he kind of part God and part man? And as the debates raged and raged and raged, they finally stopped and said, he's 100% God. Look at what he did. He's 100% man. Look at what he did. And in the Nicene Creed, this is what we read. And this is so important to understand what we confess about Jesus. We believe, and I want you to see these. See these words. Please don't let them be lost to church history or just dusty theology. Like if you can just get the wiggles out and like really see it for what it is. See them like shooting stars for what they are. They just fly across your mind. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, True God from true God, begotten, not made. Not made. God did not make Jesus. See Mormonism. See Jehovah's Witness theology. Jesus was not made. Of one substance with the Father. Of one substance. Homoousios, meaning literally of one substance. Not, Jesus is not similar to God. He is God. That's our confession as Christians. Through him all things were made for us and our salvation. He came down from heaven, was incarnate, think flesh and blood, of the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary. And he became truly human. There it is. Third century. He became Truly human. Why is this good news for you today? 
Why is it important? Because God does not love you from a distance. God has pursued you so passionately and loved you so deeply that he, in his own incomprehensible humility, came to us not to destroy us, but he came to us to love us. He became truly human. Again, if you have a high view of the Trinity, it'll move you to tears. But if you have an exaggerated view of humanity, then your view of the Trinity is diminished. And the incarnation is just religious jargon or a fad or an idea that you can just scroll by like a meaningless Twitter feed. Having a high view of the Trinity matters. All good theology begins right there. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So you see, because Jesus took on flesh and blood, he really knows you. And he really knows what you're going through. And so with all of our weaknesses and frailties, Jesus knows what it is like to have someone betray him. Jesus knows what it is like to have family members think he's out of his mind. Jesus knows what it's like to pray diligently and have to wait on God for wisdom on what to do next. Jesus knows what it's like to battle overwhelming temptation from the enemy. Jesus knows what it's like to go to worship in the synagogue surrounded by people who don't have their act together. Jesus knows what it's like to be faced with troubling and evil politicians. Jesus knows what it's like to have to get up and go work a job every day. Jesus knows what it's like to be an unmarried man. Jesus knows what it's like to run short on money. Jesus knows what it's like to get tired and hungry and need somewhere to rest. Jesus knows what it's like to always be questioned by the crowds. Jesus knows what it's like to be misunderstood by his closest friends. Jesus knows what it's like to suffer spiritual abuse at the hands of religious authorities. Jesus knows what it's like to come from a small town and have people sneer at him. Jesus knows what it's like to be made fun of and bullied. Jesus knows what it's like to have lies told about you. Jesus knows what it's like to tell the truth to people who don't want to hear it. Jesus knows what it's like to practice justice in a world that absolutely doesn't want it. Jesus knows what it's like to have a lot of demands put on him. Jesus knows what it's like to sit with weeping people. Jesus knows what it's like to restore the dignity of someone who lost theirs. Jesus knows what it's like to comfort the family of someone who's passed away. Jesus knows what it's like to be hated for all the wrong reasons. Jesus knows what it's like to give up his own life so that someone like Barabbas might go free. And because Jesus was clothed, was clothed in flesh and blood, he entered into 
that thing that we all despise and don't want to talk about. Jesus knows what it's like to die. His flesh was pierced to the cross. His blood was poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Why? As the creed told us, for us and our salvation, he came down so that you might go up. (laughs) That's a savior. That's our savior. This is why you and everyone in our city needs Jesus. Because at the core of the Christian faith, what you don't find in any other religion or philosophy is this. You find God in all of his perfection, emptying himself to the degree, to this degree, for love's sake. So if you ask yourself today, as a follower of Jesus in a city like ours here in Seattle, how does this encourage you today? What kind of strength can you draw from this reality? How does this practically shape how you're going to go about your work this week? How does Jesus' humility and identification with you speak to the pace of your life? How does this affect home life? This, essentially, redemption is the Christmas story right here in June. And so I know we've got a long way to go before Advent, um, but I guess I'll just go ahead and conclude today our sermon, wishing you a Merry Christmas. (laughs) Jesus loves you. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for taking on flesh and blood, being made just like us, yet without sin. Jesus, you are perfect, and you've taught us how to become whole human beings as we walk in repentance and trust you. Jesus, we ask that you would help us lift you up and to consistently walk with you this week. We need your spirit and your grace, and we need one another's encouragement along the way. Thank you for our church. Thank you for how you're working in the body of redemption. We pray that you would continue to do so for your glory. We pray this in your good name. Amen.